Hey Thrivers, and welcome to the Thrive Student Ministry Podcast. Thrive is an MBSF college ministry on the campus of the University of Arkansas at Fayetteville. At Thrive, we empower students to engage in their relationship with God through mentorship, friendship, and the discovery of their purpose. For more information on our gathering times, including our events, small groups, and weekly worship, visit us at thriveuark.com or follow us on our social medias at thriveuark. This week, Jack continues our series on relationship through the lens of the story of David. We hope you enjoy the message. Fun topic. Relationships, no doubt, uh, are, are not easy. Relationships are not easy. And um, while, while that being said, while they're not easy, while many people know they're not easy, um, I would still say that, man, so many of us, we still want, and I think there's something just kind of, um, kind of built within us, that we want a sense of, of love and belonging, Okay. We want that. Uh, on the same sense in our society today, and it's really nothing new. Uh, I just think like all things, and, and I, I would preface this as well, that um, I'm not against anybody using an online dating service or something. I think I used to be. Um, and because I'm older, I know, and it wasn't as prevalent, and it was more sketchy than it even is uh, now um, whenever it first got started. Um, but I think that I've known enough people now where it's, it's, it's beneficial, uh, it can be good, but I think, you know, like a lot of other things, social media and, and the day and time we live in, uh, it really just kind of magnifies things, right? If you want to be shady, uh, if you were going to be shady anyway, um, you know, the anonymity of something online allows you to be as vulgar as maybe you want to be because you don't have to actually look at someone in the face. Um, it allows people to be as inappropriate as they might want to be um, because they don't have, you know, maybe you don't actually know their name or know exactly who they are or they just don't, you know, the boldness that you're not standing right in front of them type thing. Um, and so either way, it typically, it, it, where we're kind of going with this is that you, you can, you can kind of say and do some things that maybe derail or mess up a relationship uh, before it even gets going and, and maybe do some things kind of the wrong way. And so as great as relationships are, and, and I will say this, um, because, and I think everybody's kind of, I mean, not everybody, but, but a vast majority of people, you want people in general in your life who you know are authentic and real and that kind of stuff. But then I would even say too that uh, I'll know a lot of people, um, even with all the difficulties, even with the divorce rate maybe being the way that it is, uh, even with some of you having some just absolute terrible breakups and some terrible relationships and stuff like that, uh, we still want a person, right? And, and I've been married for 14 years, and I absolutely, like, I'm, I get to do pre-marriage counseling from time to time. We get to do some deep dives. Uh, I'm doing that with a couple right now uh, in the midst of that. I'm about to wrap that up with, with, with them. And, and it always reminds me of, uh, <laughs> it reminds me of, of being able to just walk through some different pieces as, as a couple's getting ready to get married and be able to uh, talk about some stuff and, and, and then also share in the joys of what marriage is and can be. And just absolutely amazing. And I, I look forward to the day where Karen and I can be old together. We can grow old together. Uh, I love, even up to this point, there's nobody in this world that knows me better than her. 
uh, who's seen ups and downs, who we've been through some, some really fun times and we've had some, some crappy days, you know, and we've had some times that are tough and we've prayed for some big things. We've prayed in desperation for some things. We've had, we've shared some dreams together. Uh, and so as awesome as they are, they can also be just gut-wrenching if not done right. If done outside of the, outside of the bounds. That, I mean, there, I, I really can't, I don't know of another relationship that can be as heartbreaking, as wrenching. I mean, it can, right? And those of you who have been through a relationship that just was not healthy, not good, or you've seen one, um, you know that it doesn't just affect one avenue of life, but it, it hurts all kinds of things. And, most, and it's hard to, to do much of anything uh, when you're going through a difficult and hard relationship. And so let's go ahead and dive into it as we, as we go right here. And even this idea, uh, kind of throwing out the, the tender idea and the phrasing <laughs> um, of, of just like, you know what, we're just going to jump into this. And we're going to see how far we can go, how fast we can go, right? That's kind of the nature of the story where we're going. That's kind of what happens here. And so we're in 2 Samuel um, 11. Some of you guys are going to be familiar with this story. Uh, we've had this, I've had this conversation a couple different times this week. I love you guys. I love like where you are. Um, because I know in this room right now, um, there's several of you who... We're going to turn to a story like this, and you know it, and you know it pretty well, and you've heard it talked about a lot. And um, but then again, I also know that there are people who have not heard it and have don't know it as well. Um, and, and either way, either end of the spectrum, I think there's some things to learn from it, and it's a lot of fun to be in the room together. So if you're one of the people who feel like, man, I don't really know this story, I don't know that I've heard it very often, um, it's okay. Don't worry about it. Um, you're going to learn some, some awkward and weird stuff over the next three weeks. Um, but for those of you who, who feel like you are aware of it, like, like normally, like I like to try to warn you is, don't run past it. I would encourage you to go back through this week and read, read through this slowly. Because you don't want to be here all night, and neither do I. And so there's no way we can cover all of it. So, chapter 11, verse 1, in the spring of the year, when the kings normally go out to war, David sent Joab and the Israelite army to fight the Amorites. They destroyed the Amorite army and laid siege to the city of Rahab. Or, sorry, Rabah. However, David stayed behind in Jerusalem. Okay, big indicator right there. David stayed behind in Jerusalem. Late one afternoon, after his midday rest, David got out of bed and was walking on the roof of the palace. As he looked out over the city, he noticed a woman of unusual beauty taking a bath. He sent someone to find out who she was, and he was told she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Elam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to her, and when she came to the palace, he slept with her. She had just completed her purification rites after having her menstrual period. Then she returned home. After, or sorry, later, when Bathsheba discovered that she was pregnant, she sent David a message saying, I am pregnant. And so there's a couple different pieces here that if you're taking notes, you need to... You need to grab a hold of. And, and one of them is that sin always has consequences. 
The hard part is we don't ever know how to fully calculate all the consequences. And that's something we just can't get around with this story. Now, for those of you who know David, right? This is David and Goliath, David. Um, he's that kind of David. Uh, he's David and Saul. He, he's, he, it's the same, same guy, same person, right? And so David is, is a guy who has seen highs and seen lows with God and, and his relationship. We, we, I genuinely believe David has an authentic relationship with God. He has a real love and respect and honor for God, which all the more is why this piece right here can get really interesting. And one of the things that I would just encourage you to understand is that we are all two steps from stupid, right? <laughs> uh, I do enjoy that phrase because I have to remind myself of that. Is that even when we're doing well, even when we have, you, you feel confident, um, you're not very far from being really dumb and making some stupid decisions, especially when it's in regard to sin. And that's where David is. And so we can get into a lot of backstory here, uh, but to save us a little bit of time, we kind of get this idea that David is home when he shouldn't be home. You got the army, they're out fighting. As far as historically and that kind of stuff, uh, and, and I, love this, I love this phrase too, success is not owned, it's rented. This is something that is still difficult for me to wrap my head around. But I've seen it in my own life that, that every single one of us man and woman, you, you have the ability to have some success and then take a break, right? And think, I'm doing good. Things are going great. I just did this, this, and this. Awesome. And then especially on the moral sense, where you think, I'm, I can relax. I can chill. David has just gone through the, he's just had the ability to bring the ark back to Jerusalem. Like in the, within a five-year time period, they've had all kinds of different conquests. They've been able to bring the art back to Jerusalem. They've been able to defeat the Philistines and get them out of the land. They've been able to uh, celebrate. He's been able to celebrate with Jonathan's son. He's been able to defeat the Amorites. And now he's got his army out just making that push to get them gone. And so David's kingdom is having a lot of success. And for one reason or another, David thought that it was okay to be home. And I would, I would say... Possibly, maybe. That's not inherently like just bad, bad. I've heard it both ways. I can, I've studied it both ways. I will tell you this. There's times that you might be somewhere you're not supposed to be. And, and honestly, when fighting off temptation, sometimes you need to understand that you might need to, if you're not supposed to be there, then leave. If you're not supposed to, to be in that spot and you know that, it might be good for you not to keep hanging out. And that's really the kind of story with David. But it leads to something else, right? It leads to him taking a nap in the afternoon, waking up, relatively harmless, chilling around the palace, walk out on his balcony, looks out, sees a beautiful woman taking a bath. Actually, up to this point, like, not really anything. I mean, we can go, we can go all kinds of different directions here. But, but really, he's in a situation where he hadn't necessarily done anything wrong. He just, you know, maybe. We, we, you may stretch the idea that he's home when he shouldn't be home. But, but, 
But really, even up to this point, too, David just happens to be in, you know, depends on who's reading the story and what you're thinking about it, but in the right place at the wrong time or wrong place, wrong time, um, whichever way you want to look at it. But, but that, that's, David thinks at the moment he's in the right place at the right time. Uh, and that, that's the problem. And so he's looking out. And, and here's one thing I want you to understand, too, because I think I've heard this kind of both ways where it's a David and Bathsheba. They both have a problem here. Uh, when you understand who Bathsheba is, and the author gives us enough information to know that David's the king, and because that she's married to Uriah and the daughter, that who she is, she's an outsider. She really doesn't have a choice here. It's, it's really not like, like this is not a moment where it's like an affair type situation where both of them have mutually decided that they're going to sleep together. That's not what's happening. David sees her. David sends for her because of her position, because of his position. He leverages a moment that he should not. This is, this is completely on David. This is not on her at all. And so that's kind of what goes down. There's a pattern here that I want you to try to pick up on. And we're going to look at it in a couple other places in Scripture. and Hopefully not be too, too terribly long. But David saw her. He desired her. He took her. And then conceals, tries to conceal it. And so there's a process right here that you can kind of follow along with. And that's really where, he's at, where he is. And I say the idea even too that David tries to conceal it. And so the next morning, David wrote a letter to Joab. And he gave it to Uriah to deliver. Right? This is a little bit further down in 14. And they've gone back and forth here. There's been some, some, some pieces where David has tried to bring Uriah home. Right? Why would he do that? He brings him home trying to... To, to kind of hide it, you know? Hey, he brings Uriah home. Hey, you know what? Come home. He even gets him drunk. So, I mean, David's stepping over all kinds of lines and saying, hey, look, go home. Have sex with your wife. You've been gone for a long time. And really the whole hope is that they'll sleep together and then, yeah, wow, your baby looks an awful lot like the king. Um, you know, I mean, but, I mean, that's what they're going for. That's what David's going for. And there's really not an idea. I mean, just kind of a... For David to be some, the man that he is and to walk through this kind of scenario this way, it, it really is. You, my heart breaks for it because you look at it from the outside and you see a train wreck happening. But so many times when we're on the outside looking in to someone who's following this process of sin, it looks like a train wreck. You know this is not going to end well. What are you doing? What's happening here? Why would you do that? And so many different times when it's us in the midst of that. It's, uh, there's something that wars within us, right? When David stands on the rooftop and he sees something that he shouldn't have, rather than walk back in and say, uh, you Let's forget that. Let's move past it. He lingers. He lingers in long enough to say, go back into a servant and say, hey, 
The person over in 31B, let's, who is that? You should bring those, you should bring them over. And then they come together and it moves really fast right here, but they don't just hop in bed. So, so there's, there's moments, there's stages in this thing. And all of this time, David could have backed out and said, this is inappropriate, this is wrong. No. But he doesn't. And so he takes Bathsheba. And it doesn't stop there because it's as one more step further. He knows he's done wrong. Oh, crap. She's pregnant. We ought to come clean. No. <laughs> like, ah, we got to cover this up. How can we get out of this? And what I want you to see is just the nature of sin just in general. And so we're specifically dealing with lust right here. But across the board, this is how sin works oftentimes. And so here he goes. He tries to, to conceal it. And we have Uriah. And so David writes this letter. He sends it back to, which is just, is just another one of those things where just the grossness and grotesqueness of sin, right? That he has this guy who is faithful, who has served him, who has put his life on the line. David tries to get him to come home, sleep with his wife. He didn't even do that because he wants to honor the kingdom. He knows that Joab, my commander, and all, my, all the men are out there fighting. I can't go home and enjoy the pleasures of my own house. I got to stay right here. I got to stay geared up and ready because I know I'm going back. I need to go back. I got to be with them. Man, look at the contrast of the righteousness between these two people. David and Uriah. And then David, as sick as it is, writes a letter and says, basically, here's how we want to pull away from Uriah. And so put him on the front line, pull him back. And then hands it to Uriah to take to the commander. And so that's kind of where we are. Verse 15, the letter is instructed Joab, station Uriah at the front lines where the battle uh, is the fiercest, then pull back so that he'll be killed. So Joab assigned Uriah to a spot close to the city, sorry, close to the city wall where he knew the enemy's strongest men were fighting. And when the enemy soldier came out of the city to fight, Uriah, and the, Hitt the, Uriah the Hittite was killed along with several other Israelite soldiers. Sin brings death. And in this case, sin brings the death of Uriah. It's an instituted murder. It's a, it's a planned killing. I mean, just, just sit in that moment for just a second and think about just how crazy that is. And the piece that I want us to, to really set in is the idea that you and I are not far off from David. You're capable of this kind of thing. I'm capable of this kind of sin, and it's the nature of it. To think that in a military operation, one, that they're going to send him in a place that's that's over his head intentionally, then we're going to pull people back. And the process of this piece particularly is Uriah is not the only one who dies. 
there are other men who it cost them their life because of David's decisions. And your sin will not only affect you, it will not only affect those closest to you, but it will also affect those who are around. And back to the very kind of beginning statement that we can't calculate all the consequences. If David were thinking kind of rationally, he never would have said, man, I want Uriah to die. Not in the very beginning. He sure as heck would never have signed off on the idea that X, Y, and all these other guys, whoever it was, that died during that process. He was just worried about concealing his sin. And you and I oftentimes fall in that same trap. And so David, this process of that he saw, he desired, he took, he concealed, right? That's a reoccurring theme. Matter of fact, Genesis 3, Dom kind of even went back there last week. I don't even know if you remember picking up on it a little bit. But in Genesis 3, verse 6, it's the same kind of process. You can turn there if you want to, but it's Adam and Eve, right? And the serpents come in and had this conversation going back and forth with them. And the serpents, oh, come on. God's holding out on you. He, 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 you're, you're not going to die from eating that fruit. God just doesn't want you to become like him. And quite honestly, there's so much of human nature. There's so much of the story of the whole Bible in the first few books of Genesis. But that temptation is the same temptation that you and I face on all kinds of stuff, right? That, that quite honestly, we, we, when we begin to think that, man, God's holding out on me in one form or fashion. Whether, whether it be because you feel like you know the answer, you feel like you need to shove things forward, or you feel like that what God has even said about you, maybe it's insecurity in the sense that, that what God has said to be true about you, that it can't possibly be true. Or in this specific case, in the, in the story of David, where it's, it's lust, and it's as if he's like, hey, what would be best for me is to have sex with this woman. Because she's beautiful and she's got everything I desire. I don't want to step too far ahead of myself because we're going to get into some of this next week. But, but just that idea that I mean, if we just set in that for just a moment. Just the ludicrous nature of, of that thought from David. It's crazy. But the same thing is true right here. Where... It says the woman was convinced. Yeah, God's holding out on us. We should take a bite of that fruit. God gave them paradise. God gave them each other. God gave them meaningful work. God gave them everything they needed. And the thought was, that's not enough. God is restricting us. And so she saw that the tree was beautiful. 
and its fruit looked delicious. And she wanted the wisdom that it would give her. So she took some fruit and ate it. Then she gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it too. At that moment, their eyes were open and suddenly they felt shame at their nakedness. Think about that for a minute. A life with zero shame. Like, <laughs> I don't mean to <laughs> be too graphic, but like, think about that for just a second. That, there, that life existed where you could walk naked and nobody was ashamed. Both physically, emotionally, spiritually, all of it, you can see every bit of me and there is nothing to be ashamed of. That's a much different world than we live in, right? And in that moment, shame entered in. The same thing that with you and me, it's that nature of sin is, as they took, and so as a result of the taking and the shame, what happens next? So they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. Let's conceal the shame. Rather than deal with it, rather than own up to it, we'd prefer to hide it. Which is what Adam and Eve did. Like I said, it's a reoccurring theme, right? And Dom read the verse to kick off the service, and the verse is James 1, 14, 15, right? Temptation comes from our own desire, which entice us and drag us away. These desires give birth to sinful action. And when sin is allowed to grow, it gives birth to death. When we allow the sin to grow, it goes toward death. When we allow the shame to grow, it gives birth to death. There's a harsh reality that sin causes death in your life and in my life. Now you allow that thing to keep growing and that's where it's headed. And so even all the way back in the garden, God's design was never to hold back from Adam and Eve. And this is something that not until this, probably even this last year, that I think Dom and I were actually having a kind of discussion on some different stuff and, and some of the Genesis things that were kind of going on. I don't know that God was never going to allow them to eat of that tree. He just said, not right now. Which is very intriguing to me. Because there's a lot of things in your life that God may, might need to tell you not right now. That you have desires, that you have passions, that you've got some things that you want. Possibly even like David standing on top of the, uh, of the rooftop as he looks over. And he has some desires that he wants. And God says... No, out of bounds. Not right now. It shouldn't be. 
What do you have going on in your life right now that you look at and it says, hey, listen, not right now. Because sometimes the answer is a hard no. And what we need to understand about that every single time is that God's desire is not to hold out on you. God's desire is for you to have the best existence you can. Every, I, I honestly believe this, all the 600-something laws that He gave the children of Israel were to help them understand what sin was, that, what destruction was, that here's all these things that when you cross these lines, they head toward death. They head toward destruction. They're the things that are going to steal, kill, and destroy. You need to stay away from those things. And that's why we call them sin. That's why they are transgressions. They are things that lead toward death. But there's another way that leads toward life. There's another way that leads toward life more abundantly. And that's really where James continues to go on, right past the piece where Dom stopped. And, and it says this, because the piece that even he finished off with is that idea that, that we're God's prized possession. We're his workmanship. We're, he, is, he is proud of the creation of who we are and who we can be. Not the sin, but, but we're his prized possession. So number verse 19 in, in James 1 says this, Understanding this, dear brothers and sisters, you must all be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to get angry. Human anger does not produce righteousness, the righteousness that God desires. So get rid of all filth and evil in your lives. And humbly accept the word God has planted in your hearts. For it is the power to save souls. Verse 22 says this, But don't just listen to the word of God, or to God's word. You must do what it says. Otherwise, you're only fooling yourself. So what are we supposed to do in light of some of this? Because David is as awesome as he was, right? As awesome as he was, he struggled. And he was two steps from stupid. And I can tell you in my own life and dealing with my own sin, man, it's so easy. A little bit of confession, right? Like, I, 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 I knew that truth early on in life. But I didn't always live by it. And to be honest with you, like I've, I have absolutely been there and, and been there in all kinds of different levels, right? But I've been in that spot where David is. And before getting married to Karen, I, I did sleep with a girl that at the moment, that's what I wanted. And it was available. And it ruined our friendship. And I knew that. I knew it going into it. Because that's the nature of sin. It, it, it ruins those things. It, it breaks up those things. There's no, I mean, we, there's so many different things in life, but, but particularly in, in, in that regard, like you can look at them and you can say, I don't like that. Or I don't believe in that or whatever. And you can butt your head against the wall or you can begin to understand that there are certain truths within life 
that that's the way it is and I need to change my life in order to fit around it. And the truth of the matter is that when we, when we sin, it leads toward death. It leads toward destruction. And so I lost a friend in the midst of that. But I can also tell you too that when I had the opportunity to begin a relationship with Karen, there's a reason why we started our relationship the way that we did. There's a reason why we pumped the brakes the way that we did. There's because I was terrified and did not want to lose a friend at minimum. And there's some things that we did early on in our relationship that I can share with you maybe at a different time, but I look back on that and I, I, I love it. And I'm, I'm glad that God gave that conviction. But the truth of the matter is, too, I also cause insecurity within our relationship because that conversation had to come up and we had to talk about it. And we're married for 14 years. Does it still come up? Not that often, but it's something we have to talk about from time to time. And it's not worth it because God's not holding out on you. But the same thing's true not only with sexual sin, but the same thing's true with insecurity, jealousy, greed. All across the board, sin, unchecked, sin, left alone, if the, if the idea is that you're just going to conceal it, you're just going to push it down, you're just going to act like it doesn't exist, every single time it leads toward death. Every single time you don't know how to calculate the consequences. You don't know how far it's going to go. You don't know what it might morph into. You don't have control over it. I heard it described this way one time. Actually, it's a pretty good analogy. But it's the idea of if you, literally as a kid, one of the, what's one of the most terrifying things for you is that you might have a monster under your bed or you might have a monster in your closet or something like that, especially in the dark. And essentially that idea of you're going to consistently feed the monster, it ain't going away. If the idea is you're just going to keep hiding it, how the monster dies is you, you turn the lights on, you open things up. You take away the concealing. And so whether that's speaking with a friend, whether that's speaking to someone close to you, a family member or something like that, whether that's starting off confessing to God, what well, he already knows. But sin, left unchecked, leads to death. And that verse 22 of James 1 kind of gives us the prescription of how we're supposed to live in a nutshell. And it's that idea that you need to be a listener of God's Word. But not just a listener, but actually go do it. And he gives another great example on the back end of that chapter. That if you're going to listen and not actually put it into practice, it would be like any one of us going to bed tonight, waking up in the morning with bedhead and drool or whatever. I don't know how many of you drool, but, um, but waking up 
and your hair in a mess, your clothes in a mess, you look in the mirror, you see that you're a mess, and then you walk out the door. At least on the female side, I know most of you don't do that. <laughs> Males, maybe. Um, no, you see that your hair looks like crazy, and even if, anyway, I could go to, through Karen's routine in the morning, but how much either she curls her hair or straightens her hair or does both. Um, but even before we go work out at five, um, <laughs> yeah, sometimes, yeah. <laughs> anyway. Um, but it would be as if you look in the mirror and you're like, yeah, I look like crap. And then you don't do anything about it and you just leave. It's the same thing when we do, when we read God's word, when you open it up, when you, but you don't have any intention on applying it to your life. And what James is saying is don't do that. Put it into practice. David knew what was right and didn't. And because he didn't, it cost Uriah his life and other people with it. David didn't just know that he could just, you know what, let me just have Uriah killed and it's all solved. He couldn't calculate the consequences. And you can't either. And this story is not done. We'll pick up more of it next week. Let me